Welcome to the First Time Facilitator Podcast. Whether you're a first time facilitator or a seasoned pro, listen in for tips and tricks to make a bigger impact at the next workshop you deliver. And now, your host. She loves it when listeners connect with her on LinkedIn, Leanne Hughes. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Leanne Hughes, and I'm here to help you develop and deliver workshops that kill. Over the last few weeks, we've had some pretty incredible guests on the show. I had Matteo Becky talking about visual facilitation and graphic recording, Dave Jackson, Hall of Fame podcaster, sharing his concept of edutainment and why using humor is important, and Dr. Irena Yashin Shaw on the role of entrepreneurs in organizations and how she developed her exceptional presentation and facilitation skills. Now, with all of these interviews happening, I thought it was, you know, high time for a solo episode, and I wanted to talk about a neuroscience model that we can use to reduce the threat perceived by our participants and to maximize their reward response. Now, does that sound a bit geeky? Good. Are you intrigued? I hope so. But before I launch into that, a few quick updates. First, I'll be celebrating my 50th episode, which is released on the 21st of January. There's no breaks to the show over the holiday period. Uh, If you'd like to meet up and celebrate, I'm going to host an event or some kind of nibbles and drinks in Brisbane on Friday, the 18th of January, probably in the late afternoon, like a sundowner around 5pm-ish. So stay posted for information about that. Um, I'll be inviting previous guests and listeners and supporters of the show and it'd be great to meet up. I also have a few people asking me how to start a podcast. So I'm going to run a workshop in Brisbane in early January too, uh, most likely either the Friday, Saturday, Sunday on that weekend of the 13th of Jan. Uh, If you're keen on that, shoot me an email, hello at firsttimefacilitator.com. Finally, if you'd like to connect with other like-minded listeners, join our free community on Facebook. It's called The Flip Chart. Just pop onto Facebook and search for the words Flip Chart or find a link in the show notes for this episode at firsttimefacilitator.com slash episode 44. Okay, so just before I was talking about minimizing threats and maximizing rewards, you might be thinking, what the... So I recently co-facilitated a leadership course for mid-level managers. And as part of that, I explained and facilitated discussion around the SCARF model. So the SCARF model is a brain-based model created by David Rock. um, And what it is, it's a summary of important discoveries from neuroscience about the way people interact socially. So what David Rock does is he combines all the research and makes it easy for people that aren't brain scientists like me and you perhaps use the research to figure out why humans behave in certain ways and certain times. And by knowing this, you can tailor what you do to minimize their perceived threats or maximize their rewards. Now, by using this model, you can slowly start to see why this is important for a leader to be aware of. And I think these learnings can also apply to our role as facilitators. So what can we do in our role to reduce the threat response for participants in our workshops and optimize their reward response? So in this episode, I'm sharing some ideas of what I think we can do to implement the application of SCARF in the next workshop that we deliver. So 
So SCARF centers around three core themes or ideas. So what these three ideas essentially are is number one, social threats. So what they are is social threats are actually perceived by the brain with the same intensity as physical threats. So in other words, our brain is sending out the signal that we're in danger. So if you're feeling a threat response, it actually triggers the same response your brain would feel if you fell over or got punched in the face. I mean, isn't that crazy? Number two, when we are under threat, our ability to solve problems or make decisions or interact with others is diminished. However, when we're in the reward environment, our abilities are enhanced. So there's no surprises here. As facilitators, we want our participants to be participating freely and openly, hence why we really need to optimize and address and try and get as much of the reward response as we can in our workshops. And number three, the threat response or the desire to avoid pain is actually more common and always outweighs the desire to seek pleasure. Therefore, the more pain we can avoid in social situations, the more effective we can be. Now, on the flip side, when we feel rewarded, for instance, when we receive praise for our work, our brains release dopamine, the happy hormone. So we seek out ways to be rewarded again. These are the three underpinning themes of SCARF. So I hope I haven't lost you yet. Stay with me, first-time facilitators. So the word SCARF itself is an acronym and it stands for the five key domains that influence our behavior in social situations. So these words are S for status, C for certainty, A for autonomy, R for relatedness, and F for fairness. I just felt like I was on an older episode of Wheel of Fortune then. Now I'll give you a quick snippet of what these terms mean and then apply them to our role as facilitator. S stands for status. That's our relative importance to others. C for certainty, our ability to predict the future. A stands for autonomy, our sense of control over events. R is for relatedness, how safe we feel with others. And F stands for fairness, how fair we perceive the exchanges between people to be. So in many uh, previous interviews on this show, you would have heard a lot of my guests mention that it's really important to create a safe environment. So if you're curious about what that actually means and what it looks like, I think the SCARF model is a really useful way of, of really breaking it down and examining how we do that. So here are my thoughts on how SCARF plays out in facilitation. Let's start out with the first one, which is status. So status is all about our relative importance to others. It's about the pecking order. So where am I in the hierarchy in relation to you. Now, if you think about it, there is no other environment where status really jumps out more than the work environment. Uh, there's so many signals everywhere identifying who has more status than someone else. You know, think job title, corner office, getting the car park. Now, our sense of status, it increases when we feel better than someone else. But we also feel threatened when our own status is at risk. So this is the reason why you hear some managers are threatened by um, any direct report who are high performing. So they may perceive a threat from those employees. And then 
they may start acting out on this by doing things like excluding their high-performing report from important meetings or important emails. Now, that's a leadership example, but how does this apply when facilitating? I guess, well, when you're working with a range of different people, it's good for them to know the status in the room. So, one activity we run in some previous leadership courses is just getting the group up and getting them to line up in order from their most experience they've had as people leaders to the least amount of experience as people leaders. And we kind of add a bit of funness to this. We get them to do it without uh, using their voice. So we run this activity very close to the beginning of a leadership course. And what it does, it gives you a bit of intel, but it also gives the group a bit of intel on experience levels. And I guess if you know that there's someone in the room with a ton of experience in the subject matter that you're facilitating... It can sometimes be a good idea to draw on their knowledge or even check in and say things like, hey, so Janice, you've been a people leader for over 10 years. Um, Have you seen this play out um, in your experience as a leader? That makes them feel really good and also validates their status, which would decrease that threat response and increase reward. So you can also reduce threat responses by the way that you give feedback. So if you ask a question to the group, Uh, and someone responds, but the idea isn't exactly on track or correct, instead of uh, shutting them down and saying, oh, that's wrong, a good approach using SCARF would be to say, oh, that's interesting. Can you explain your thoughts? Or, hey, thanks for your comment. What does someone else in the room think? What happens if you shut that person down is it tells them that they're wrong, but it also puts out a signal to the rest of the room that you're not saving face with your question. So you haven't created an environment where it's safe to just throw around answers and respond with your personal thoughts. Now, as a result of this, others may not feel comfortable to raise their hand and respond. Now, the next item on the SCARF model is C for certainty. So, certainty is all about our ability to predict the future. We like knowing what will happen in the future. And this is why we as humans generally tend to struggle with change. Now, I was at a conference a couple of months ago in Brisbane, which had over 80 people attending and they had assigned seating. However, there was no seating plan at the entrance to tell you where your seat was. So I watched many people arrive, walk into the venue and try to casually walk past each table, darting their eyes to see where on earth they were sitting. So in my observation, not having a seating plan raised a threat response. Why? Well, I looked over and I could tell there are more than a few nervous people trying to make light of the situation, but I could also sense them thinking, I've been walking around this room looking for my name on the table. I hope they haven't forgotten me. I did sense that. And when they found their seat allocation, everyone was, I guess, I don't know, visibly sighing with relief. So a really simple move in that situation would just have been to include a seating plan at the front. So people were certain where they were sitting before they walked into the room. Now, certainty also plays out with start and end time. So make sure you start on time and make sure you finish on time. And if you tell your participants that you're going to cover content A, B, and C, then quite simply, uh, make sure that you do cover content A, B, and C. Now, this all works out really well unless you're running some type of experiential learning initiative, which in that case, you'd want to cause a bit of chaos. Also, when you explain activities or tasks, they need to um, 
have all the complete information up front as clearly as possible. Now, we use a tool in construction and mining uh, to delegate tasks, and it's called CPQQRT. Uh, yes, sorry for throwing around yet another acronym. Uh, but this also works as a model when you need to explain uh, an activity instruction. So very quickly, context is the why you're doing the activity, purpose is what they need to do, quantity, how many, quality, to what level, R for resources, what resources will you be given to complete the task, T, and when do you need this by, how much time do you have? So here's an example uh, activity instruction using CPQQRT. Okay, we've all just had a great discussion about the SCARF model. Now we're going to participate in an activity to make it really come to life. That's the context. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand up and break yourselves into four equally sized groups and sit at the four desks at the back of the room. That's the purpose. That's the what. I will hand out a task sheet that will explain your group activity. As a team, you ought to read it together and plan your approach. You'll need to select a team leader for this activity. I'll give you your task sheet, a flip chart paper and marker for your team to record any findings. So I'm linking in quality and resources in that statement. I'm going to give you 20 minutes to complete the activity and write your findings on the flip chart. And that's the time allocated. Once finished, I'm going to ask you to stop your approach and each team leader to present their findings back to the group. Any questions? So just having a really succinct paragraph which outlines what they need to do very clearly helps with that certainty. Uh, I know when I was starting out facilitation, my activity instructions weren't very clear. And as a result, um, I'd have a lot of people asking questions and it created a bit of confusion. So if you can practice that kind of CPQQRT format up front, think it out, uh, practice it out loud before you get into your workshop. I think that's a nice little approach. Okay, lots of examples under certainty. Now let's move over to A for autonomy. So autonomy is our sense of control over events. The less autonomy the person experiences, the more the situation is treated as a threat. On the other hand, the sense of autonomy activates the reward structures of the brain, creating a more stress-free environment. Now, the control of the autonomy domain is pretty crucial in corporate life, where micromanagement can sometimes be the norm. So therefore, reducing the threat to autonomy is an important part of being a manager and being a leader. But I think this also applies to first-time facilitators. It's sometimes where I can see people trip up is where they think that because they're standing in front of the room, that they need to be the expert, that they need to explain every detail of a model um, to justify their place up the front of the room. And look, the, the difference between teaching kids and teaching adults is that adults have a ton of experience. So if you're facilitating soft type, soft skill types of uh, workshops, most of the concepts that you facilitate are relatable. Um, these are models that have stood the test of time because you can see them play out in work or home life. Um, so then the value that you bring as a facilitator is your ability to really harness all the previous experience and stories and learnings from the group that you have in front of you to really make that model or whatever you're sharing with the group come to life. So in my observation, I do think that there are parallels between a manager micromanaging and a facilitator over explaining. Um, so using like, you know, 
four or five different examples to explain a concept, really going into just an immense amount of detail when it's not required or doesn't hit the time frame. Um, but yeah, look, I'm happy to be challenged on this. I'd love to hear your thoughts, but that's just um, what I felt as well uh, starting my facilitation journey. Cool. Moving on to R for relatedness. So relatedness, it's all about how safe we feel with other people. We actually perceive strangers as threats. And look, there's a really great quote from Abraham Lincoln, which explains this one. He said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. Isn't that a great quote? which really, really highlights relatedness. And this is why we run things like icebreakers and getting to know you games, particularly when we're bringing in a group of people who are strangers or don't really know each other at all. At the same time, as a facilitator, you also can't assess that a team who have worked together for a few months actually know each other as humans. So icebreakers in these type of games sometimes seem to get a bit of a bad rap. Um, They may appear a bit corny. But the intention is right, and that's all about starting people to feel comfortable around each other. If the people in the room aren't taking the initiative to do that, then it's your job as the facilitator to facilitate that, to get them to start relating with each other and ensure people feel comfortable so that they can uh, have a really great workshop experience. On the Flipchart Facebook group, I put out a call and when people introduce themselves, I ask, what's your favorite icebreaker or energizer? And Nitsan Halel wrote back, she's um, based in Melbourne, and she said, I love simple icebreakers that connect the people in the room, like trying to find something that is in common with the person next to you. Um, So that's one really great way. And I think it really points out that icebreakers don't need to be some kind of corny game or a cheesy question. This this question is fantastic. It's very simple and it helps um, reduce the threat when it comes to relatedness as part of that scarf model. So thank you, uh, Nitsan. Now, another way that relatedness can play out in workshops is when we're left out of an activity. I mean, who does who likes that? We, we perceive this as both a threat to our status and our relatedness. So as a facilitator, think about when you break into activities, if you have to pair people up, what are you going to do with the odd-numbered person? Just be cognizant of that person left over and either join the activity with them or get them to pair up in threes, especially when it's, you know, the workshop's just starting and there's no real trust in the room just yet. Moving on to fairness. It's the last letter of the SCARF acronym. And fairness is all about how fair we perceive the exchanges between people to be. As a facilitator, it's really important to remain unbiased in your approach particularly if you've been hired to drive an outcome between parties who feel particularly strong about issues. But really, this should be a base level standard for all facilitators to ensure that you treat everyone fairly, encourage mutual acceptance, and never show favour or exclude people on purpose. So sometimes it's actually worth deciding on the standard for fairness. And that's why at times you'll bring in like um, meeting rules or the rules of engagement where As a group, you collectively agree on the standards of acceptable behavior for the meeting or workshop. So, But then, look, as a facilitator, it's really, really important for you to enforce those standards and not let it be acceptable for the leader in the group or someone that has higher status to break the rules because this then would definitely signal a threat response for fairness. 
So look, those are my thoughts on how this brain-based model called SCARF can really help us to be aware of the things we need to consider when running a workshop or a meeting um, to make it safe for everyone involved. If you're interested in knowing what your main trigger is, that's a really cool uh, self-analysis on the SCARF model by David Rock. I will link to that questionnaire in the show notes. So you just answer quite a few questions and it spits out this assessment and lets you know which trigger drives you the most. Uh, For me, it's uh, both autonomy and certainty. Okay. Did I miss anything? Do you think some of the things I'm saying are controversial? Do you have any other ideas on how you have used SCARF in the past, but without even maybe knowing there was a term called SCARF, but you've been doing this stuff to make environments feel safe this whole time. What have you actually done? So you can comment on the show notes for this episode at firsttimefacilitator.com slash episode 44. Uh, join the conversation on the Flipchart community on Facebook. Uh, till next week, look forward to chatting with you then. Uh, have a great uh, mid-December. It's getting towards the end of the year. So um, hopefully it's not ramping up for you. It's going the other way and you're starting to relax. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the First Time Facilitator podcast. Make it easy for yourself and hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice. Till next time.